Hello and welcome to the Life Without School podcast, here to help you and your children live the life you want to, not just the one you're told you should. I'm Izzy, a writer and unschooling dad from New Zealand. You can find more about me at startgravingdadblog.com, as well as collections of my favourite posts bundled up into supportive, encouraging little guidebooks for anyone walking this road less travelled. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen today. All right, let's get into this week's episode. We are back. The introvert has managed to show up for a second time. Nothing can stop us now. Before we get into this chat, can I just say how thankful and completely overwhelmed I've felt over the past week. The response to the first episode has totally blown me away. Your support and encouragement and messages has given me all the fuel I need to keep these important conversations going. So thank you. My wife Kate and I have been reading through your reviews together over coffee each morning and they are just so heartwarming. Please keep them coming. To follow on from the prologue episode, I want to keep setting the scene to tell you more about who I am, who we are as a family, how we've ended up where we have and why I'm out here doing what I'm doing because I think the things I'll be using this podcast platform to talk about will be so much more useful and powerful in your life if you can connect parts of your own story to mine. So I'm going to tell you more about my family's journey, and through it, we'll break down some of the myths we so often hear about living a life without school, because so far we've broken pretty much all of them. Like the fact that we've never been wealthy, and we've had to fight and sacrifice to make this life path work financially, or that our children have never tried school. They've given not just one school a shot, they've tried it out in two completely different countries. Or the fact we don't have one or two quiet, easy children, we have four absolute hurricanes. You know how you look at those families online and say, oh yeah, life's been pretty easy for them, no wonder they can make a lifestyle like that work. Well, that's not us. In an ironic twist, our family story starts in a classroom. Kate and I met at a university here in New Zealand way back in 2003 in a lecture theatre for the education paper we were both taking. And it was just like one of those slow motion scenes from a romance movie. Sitting down to unpack our bags, eyes catching, heart stopping. And over the first few weeks of being in that paper together, we kind of awkwardly chose seats closer and closer together as we, as we arrived, until Kate finally took the initiative for both of us, thank goodness, and just sat right down next to me. We started talking that morning, and 18 years later, we still haven't stopped. Kate was this focused, diligent student majoring in music after a totally achievement-studded journey through high school. And if you listen to the prologue episode of this podcast, you'll know that I was none of those things. I was distracted and flaky. I changed my focus every year. I never really committed to any one thing. I just couldn't find my way in that setting. And we eventually wrapped up our university careers at about the same time. Kate, because she was graduating from both university and teacher's college, the legend, and me, because I'd proposed, she'd accepted, and now we had a wedding to pay for. And my studies were going nowhere. So we left university at the same time, Kate with stacks of accolades and pieces of paper and me with literally nothing. 
Kate jumped into the perfect first teaching role in a great little rural school down the road from where we lived. And I found a job selling and delivering beds for a local store. I remember taking CVs around. It must have been a hundred different businesses, just hoping that someone would give someone my age with no qualifications a shot at something, anything. So selling beds was it for me. It wasn't the lawyer I'd set out to become in my first year of university study or the computer scientist in my second or the psychologist in my third year or the web designer or maybe it was philosopher in my fourth year. I don't remember now, but it started paying for our wedding or it started paying for the money that I had borrowed for our wedding and gave me the chance to build a skill of selling in a real human way. And I didn't know it then, but that would become a huge part of my professional life later. It also started building strength in a concept that I'm super passionate about now, that life is not about what you do, it's about who you are. Around this time, I had a little health scare, something I was quite worried at the time that might be quite serious, but after a couple of visits to my doctor, told it wasn't, it wasn't serious, it was fine, and not to give it a second thought. I would find out a few years later that his diagnosis was actually very wrong. It was also around this time that Kate was becoming really disillusioned with the structure and rigidity of the education system that she was trying to inspire our future generations from inside. And I remember her coming home each day frustrated by the narrowness of those lines that she had to walk between. She took her class outside to sit under a tree. I remember her telling me the story one afternoon to do their math because the change of scene and the fresh air and the sun and the breeze... All of that, it just helped the kids relax about maths, which is, you know, a subject that usually carries a bit of stress. They they relaxed, it was great, they enjoyed it. Um, And then after a week or so of doing that, she was told that was it. She couldn't do that again because what if everyone decided they wanted to work outside? It would be chaos. Lessons happened in the classroom. Lessons happened at desks. The rules were the rules. And through Kate's experiences as a teacher... We started learning firsthand how difficult it is to be a truly creative, effective teacher in such a tight system. You can have the best intentions, but the system will always win. In 2007, Kate closed the door of her classroom for the very last time. Our first son, Joseph, was due in August and her blood pressure was starting to get up a bit too high. So we were told she'd be induced, which meant everything was happening a few weeks earlier than expected. That didn't matter though, we'd read all the parenting books, we were totally ready, we were totally prepared. And as I'm sure most of you will know, we were totally deluded. New parenthood is the most intense, overwhelming, terrifying, exhausting, rewarding, work it out as you go thing a human being can go through. So through our time in the hospital, stabilizing Kate's blood pressure, finally getting to go home, then going back to the hospital again for another round of blood pressure management, we set about working all that out. And very early on in those first few weeks as the three of us, Kate and I made a very clear decision that having at least one of us at home with our children for as long as we possibly could make it work was going to be our number one life priority. With Kate's teaching salary gone slightly earlier than we expected, I hunted out roles that would give me a bit more earning potential and move from selling beds for a retail store to selling websites for a web development company. Amazing business, amazing team, but it was sold like so many businesses are not long after I started and the new owners stripped out that management layer and 
put in their own managers. And then not very long after, asked those of us that were left to move cities to keep our jobs. I realized that this was a pretty important life crossroad. I could try and keep that job or I could go and find a new one or I could create one. So I tapped the shoulders of a couple of other guys who were in the same boat as me and together we launched our own web design company in the city that this business was leaving. With almost no money in our pockets and one single web development contract lined up, we got to work in a spare bedroom of of my house and just to make sure Kate and I felt like our plates were nice and full, we had our second son, William, who was born at home in this beautiful, empowering experience that just could not have been more different to his older brother's birth in early months. And there were no blood pressure issues this time around. In retrospect, starting and running a small business when you have two really young children and you're relying on that new business to provide you a weekly paycheck from almost day one was probably completely crazy. But we grafted hard together, we made it work, and we ran that for almost three years. We lived on rice and bean meals, we cut our own hair, we never went on holiday, we spent hardly anything on birthdays and Christmases, and we only shopped secondhand clothing. But Kate was able to be a full-time mum, and I was working on something I really enjoyed with people I respected. So we had hardly any money, but we felt fulfilled. And we were learning that life is actually just a series of these crossroads, some trivial, some significant, some obvious, and some quite subtle, that if you have your eyes and mind open to them, they offer these chances to take less travel paths. And what we were about to find out was that even though those paths are never quite as easy to navigate, they usually take you somewhere pretty interesting. early 2012, the path we'd been slashing and hacking our way along with our business opened out into this beautiful clearing. And in it, two life-changing things happened almost at once. The first, an acquisition of my team and I by a Silicon Valley company run by two of the original founders of YouTube. Crazy, but bizarrely true. The second, a recurrence of that earlier health bump I talked about that flared super aggressively and rapidly into something a specialist would soon diagnose as severe ulcerative colitis, which, if you've heard of it, is a bit like Crohn's disease. A financially life-changing moment had arrived hand-in-hand with a debilitating, incurable disease. But after years of giving up almost everything material, right down to the quality and volume of food in our cupboards, I tried to ignore that health issue and just focus on making the money that was in front of me. And I should have stopped and respected my health first, but I decided to chase that career dream. And with treatment and some pretty heavy medication on board, I chased it hard. The three or four weeks that followed that are an absolute blur to me. I flew to San Francisco and dined in a YouTube founder's penthouse apartment high above the city before throwing it all back up again through a haze of immunosuppressants and steroids back at my hotel. I spent hours and hours in meeting rooms talking and planning and scheming and presenting with nausea and crippling abdominal pain as constant companions. I was losing kilograms of weight in a country 12,000 kilometers from home. And looking back, I probably should have hospitalized myself. While I was away on that trip, Kate was back home finding us a home. We weren't going to waste this opportunity. The money from the acquisition had helped us line up a mortgage with our bank. It wasn't much more than that, but that was huge for us. 
And with the final weeks in our current rental ticking down, she found us a tidy little brick home and a nice hu- suburb. And voila, we owned our own little slice of the world, a massive life goal on the back. But life very rarely trundles along the way you expect it to. That's true for most, but especially so when you've chosen to head down a series of untrodden paths like we had. Less than six months into owning that piece in New Zealand, I was made redundant from the company that had acquired us. Two young kids, six weeks until Christmas, two weeks until the next mortgage payment, meagre savings, disease-ravaged body, no job between us. We were in trouble. But that wasn't complete rock bottom. That would come when my specialist hauled me in shortly after for a talk with a surgeon. And I remember the blurry state I was in as I sat holding Kate's hand while he talked through this situation with me. The treatment they were on, the drugs they were giving me, were damaging my organs. They were stripping my bone density. They didn't want to put me back on them. You're young. You need to think long term. I can hear their voice. The surgeon told me the plan would be to fully remove my large intestine and reroute my small intestine through a hole in the side of my stomach. And that is as major as it sounds. Multiple operations extending over many months, completely and utterly life-changing for so many reasons. And I just couldn't bring myself to do it. We had bills to pay, children to feed, a dream of having one of us at home with them as much as possible. Kate had picked up some casual work to contribute to the bank balance, but we'd need so much more to cover the costs of a family of four with a mortgage. I gritted my teeth and managed another few months in a marketing role before I finally, finally threw in the towel I should have thrown in some time ago. I was a physical wreck. Kate was insistent she pick up the earning mantle. I did not argue. I said we needed to sell our home before we were forced to. She didn't argue. We cleared out our house, we moved back with my parents, and at the age of 30 accepted we were pretty much professionally and financially back at square one. At that stage, our two boys had been in a Montessori kindergarten for a few hours on a few days each week, which is pretty much fully funded for kids in New Zealand between three and five years old. It was a lovely environment where they played and read and created and gardened. We'd been talking about the idea of homeschooling by school age since kids eventually suffocating experiences in her teaching days, probably even earlier than that really, but she was now working again to support the family and I was just too sick to take it on. So we enrolled Joseph in the first of three schools he'd eventually attend and I became a full-time stay-at-home dad while I tried to work out how to live with this new disease. The Montessori kindergarten drop-offs for William were a piece of cake. The school drop-offs for Joseph were an absolute nightmare. Tears in the car. Tears when we arrived. Tears when I left. Tears again when I returned. He's an academically-minded kid, so he had no problems at all fitting into the way of a classroom and working on the type of things that he was expected to work on, but he was emotionally drained every day. He hated the long separation from us, the big, scary playing fields, the busy playgrounds and corridors, the older kids teasing him about his height. He was just permanently miserable. I was managing to build back my strength by this point through rest and gentle exercise and diet changes and fine-tuning, rest and more rest. And being back at square one kind of sucked, but it was also a wee bit liberating. There was no work stress. There were no overflowing inboxes. There were no people dynamics. There were no deadlines. 
And that stripped back life version we suddenly found ourselves living, along with presumably a bit of luck, was helping me push my disease into remission. And I remember going back and seeing my specialist and talking about it and discussing how I had dodged the surgery bullet for now. So with my health coming back through the middle of 2013, I started opening my eyes again to work opportunities. And I got talking to a guy local here who I'd met in the tech scene and he was building something really cool with a couple of other people. I was crazy excited about their vision. They planned to grow as a remote company, which back in 2013 was not that common, uh, rather than an office-centric one, and clearly respected and valued family life and balance. I wanted to be involved. They wanted me to be involved. So I was back at work, but this time from my kitchen table. We settled into a nice gentle routine over the next six months or so. Kate working at a medical clinic, me from home with the flexibility to run the kindy and school drop-offs and pick-up rounds. And so we decided to get back to growing our family again. We'd always had the idea and dream, I guess, of, of having four children. And so in 2014, Kate started winding down her work and prepared for our second home birth. One that was as uncomplicated as Williams, but significantly longer and more difficult. Florence would begin life as she intended to live it, in her own time, on her own terms. So 2014 is coming to a close now, and after a year and a half in the school system, Joseph is still miserable. And with my health and work role nice and stable, plus the fact that I was working remotely, so I was in and around the home most of the week, it was finally time to kick off the educational approach we'd always talked about and always planned. Out went a New Zealand homeschooling application to exempt him from school, and in came an approval call shortly after. The relief Joseph expressed that day, the weight he clearly felt had been shifted from his seven-year-old shoulders, spoke volumes to us. So cue the happily ever after music. Well, no, not quite. The year that followed was one of the hardest of our lives, and we'd had some challenging phases by then. Florence was an intense baby. William was morphing from the most snugly gentle toddler into a rambunctious ball of energy, and we spent most of the year carrying guilt around not teaching Joseph. We'd committed to homeschooling him through a curriculum we'd designed and had signed off by the education authorities here, and we just weren't executing on it. By the end of the year, we were exhausted and felt we'd let him down. And with William also now coming up to school age, we reluctantly enrolled them both in school, a much smaller one than last time though, for the 2016 year. We just didn't believe we could deliver the education they needed. It's ironic really, we made that decision for them, thinking we were doing them a disservice, but we'd actually realised later that our less instructional approach was exactly what they needed, and continued to need. We just didn't understand the concept of de-schooling ourselves, and the concept of unschooling, and the different versions of home education that you can live, to realise we'd already started doing what we should have been doing for our children, then it was just our measure of success that was wrong. That 2016 school year for the two boys was okay. The smaller school size helped Joseph's anxiety settle, yay, and William is super social, so he had no problems making a bunch of friends and having some fun, but the tone of our parent-teacher catch-ups became more and more tense and urgent as the year went on, And by the time we were getting towards the end of that year, we were being told William had serious focus issues and had a long way to go to catch up on his math ability and writing neatness and reading comprehension. We were told we had a busy summer ahead of us to start getting him ready for the next school year. 
Meanwhile, the business I had joined from the kitchen table back in 2013 was going so well that we'd gone from a team of 5 to 35 and had started turning our business growth attention toward our big brother overseas, Australia. To us, this was another crossroad, another well-trodden path to the left and rambling overgrowth to the right. So naturally, we turned right. In early 2017, Kate and I packed up three suitcases, two backpacks and a baby stroller, hugged our family, said our teary goodbyes and boarded a plane to move our life to Melbourne, a city we'd never even visited, a country we'd spent a grand total of nine days in on our honeymoon 12 years earlier. Our job was to set up the Australian office for the company and build an amazing local team. Our first step after arriving was obviously finding somewhere to live, but with the guilt we built up through our first homeschooling experience still feeling quite fresh, we also needed to find a good school. We moved into a lovely suburb close to the city, nothing like sacrificing space for location, hello, tiny basic rental apartment, with a well-regarded and well-funded public school close by, within walking distance. On that first day of school, Joseph and William put on their matching blue and gold uniforms, which were second-hand, of course, matching blue and gold backpacks, which I would say were fourth or fifth-hand, and ate their breakfast on the lounge floor. We'd completely underestimated the cost of picking up a rental in Australia, and the small budget we'd set aside for IKEA furniture had been completely drained before we'd even turned the key to our new place. We bought some mattresses for the floor, bed frames were pushed to the nice-to-have list, some sleeping bags, a small table, and some kitchen basics. That was it. I walked the boys to school, hugged them at the gate, and with tears in my eyes, headed toward the co-working space I was basing myself in. I remember the feeling of those tears rolling down my cheeks because it just wasn't the right thing to do. Both Kate and I felt this gut-wrenching sadness about our failure to homeschool successfully despite believing so strongly that it was best for our kids, but it hadn't worked, and that exhaustion of it not working felt so big still. And besides, we were going without materially in a pretty extreme sense. A family of five is hard to fund on one income, especially after ending up back at square one so recently in life. Not only did we not even have a sofa to sit on our apartment, we didn't have a financial safety net of any kind. Kate really needed to add an income to the mix. Your son is immature, William's teacher said to us across the classroom desk. He doesn't listen, he can't keep up, he can't focus, and he needs the toilet far too often. We were at our mid-year parent-teacher interview at this new school, and this is the part from the prologue episode where we're perched on those tiny little classroom chairs designed for kids while we have this parent-teacher chat. There are many, many wonderful teachers out there doing amazing things despite the constraints of the system, but William's teacher that year was not one of them, for him at least. She was a nice person, but her approach toward children could not have been more jarring for someone like him. She used behavioural tactics like restricting his monkey bar time in the playground, the thing he loved the most and that helped him get his physicality out after long periods of being still when she decided he wasn't listening enough in class. She delayed his playtime if he needed the toilet too often. Trips, he tells us now, were used to just get some space and to breathe. Carrots and sticks, rewards and punishments, continual relentless consequences for being who you are 
if who you are doesn't fit the required mold, or for finding ways to manage your mental health in an environment you're uncomfortable in, if such ways disrupt the continual pursuit of progress. We left that talk feeling scolded and with what felt like an order to pull our son in line. Our gut was telling us we were on a very slippery slope and we started talking about the option of homeschooling again late into the night, every day, I remember it. But our confidence had been knocked so badly the first time around, we just couldn't take the leap. And besides, money, right? We tried to fix William's school issues. To fix him. We reluctantly took his teacher's feedback on board. We clamped down on anything too physical inside our home. We relentlessly shushed his noise. We pushed him to practice his writing, his school reading books, to complete his homework each night. We tried to create that same schooling environment of quiet obedience. Our home became like a classroom with us as the teachers, but there was no learning happening. Just a whole lot of attempted behavior shaping and arguments and frustration and timeouts and tears from us as much as him. It was exhausting. And through it, we watched him disintegrate. He came home one day, burst into tears on his bedroom floor and shouted over and over that he hated himself at school. After the shock of hearing those words from our seven-year-old childhood subsided, they started to really sink in. Hated himself at school. He knew what was required of him in that environment. He knew he was failing to live up to the standards. He knew he couldn't be himself. And because we were trying to set those same standards at home as well, with more and more desperation, he had no release. Our precious seven-year-old boy had that tension between who he was and who others were asking him to be sitting squarely on his shoulders, and it was crushing him. He clearly saw and understood what his teachers, principal, and for shame, his parents hadn't. To make it through school successfully, he'd have to become someone he wasn't. He'd need to chop off some edges so he'd fit in the mould. He was never going to be comfortable in a quiet, obedience-oriented, mostly sedentary environment for six and a half hours a day, five days a week, for 13 years. He was screaming inside and had no idea how to express it all. So we took the foot off the pedal at home. We made noise with him. We hung out at the park where he'd run and cartwheel and forward roll and play fight with sticks and dance. We let him dismantle stuff. Turns out he can put things back together again. And we did all that instead of homework, instead of keeping up with the schoolwork, instead of putting on the pressure that was being asked of us. And we ignored the teacher's notes about it. We reflected more. Our first attempt at homeschooling had been a failure, but only when measured against the academic progress benchmarks we were holding ourselves and our children to. When measured against what we truly feel are important, things like happiness, meaning and purpose and connection and exploring our passions, we were actually heading down the right path all along. We gently discussed the option of homeschooling again with William and Joseph. And there was this chorus of excitement and relief, but it was William's face that really told the story, when the spark we knew so well, but hadn't seen for so long, flashed in his eyes. It was so vivid. After having delayed her job decision for a couple of weeks, while we worked through all of this, the feelings and the emotions and the practical side and the financial side and just everything in that big bubbling life mix, Kate officially pulled her hat from the job ring. Our children's lives were way more important than the material things we felt we needed. And we'd just continue backing my role to support our life choices. We'd rather go without material things than have our children go without the opportunity 
to become the best versions of themselves. And besides, it was kind of fun using an apartment like a tent. A few weeks later, in late 2017, I wrote down William's story. I felt it was important, with his permission at the time, to share his experience, to make it okay to not fit the system. That post resonated with so many people that a fire of purpose was lit inside me, and I haven't stopped writing since. We have four children now, 14, 11, 6 and 2, two boys, two girls. We've been unschooling and sharing thoughts from that journey for almost four years now. We still live on one income, as materially leanly as we can to make that work, and we still don't own our own home. Maybe we never will, but that's okay. Kate and I have come to crossroad after crossroad in the past 18 years, but I can't help feeling we've ended up exactly where we were always meant to be. It was that jagged journey we needed to go through to learn from, because it's the feelings and emotions from those experiences that we've been able to start putting into words for others. To inspire and motivate and encourage and support, we both feel a deep sense of that being our life mission now. In the year 2040, our kids will be hitting their 30s. What will the world look like then? What challenges will we be facing as humans? What will we need people to stand up and fight for? These are big questions to answer, but I'm confident saying one thing. Free-thinking, expressive, passionate, energetic boundary pushers will have a huge role to play in tackling those future challenges. And I intend to foster those qualities for as many days and years as my children will let me. Okay, I really hope you've enjoyed listening to that little tale, really long tale, of how we became a home-educating family. For me... It's just a reminder that everyone's story is different. Everyone's background is different. Everyone's journey is theirs. And that, ultimately, it's up to us as parents to fight and be the change that our children need. Thank you for being here again with me. And please keep leaving those overwhelming reviews if this podcast is touching your life. Okay, I'll see you back here in a week. Bye for now.